0: Hello and thank you for tuning in to the Flatiron Syndicate Motorsports Podcast. This show is brought to you by Flatirons Tuning, your source for any aftermarket or OEM Subaru parts. Be sure to check out our store at flatironstuning.com and stay tuned with Flatirons Tuning. Well, welcome back everybody to the Flatiron Syndicate Podcast. We are here today for episode number, oh man, don't quote me on this, I think 117. We've got a special guest with us who some of you might know, some of you might not know. If you do know him, you probably know him as 900BRZ on YouTube. But this is uh, Brian is joining us today, and uh, Brian, the reason I ask you to come on in chat is because you have done uh, something really interesting and really uh, significant. I think in that you have a a new 2022 BRZ, and you kind of got um, a sense that there was there was something going on with the car. Uh, it and I should say that you you like to track the car. That's that's the, kind of one of the primary things you do with it and so you decided to gather some data and and get a picture of what's going on with the oiling system in, in the brz and you found out some really interesting information and i want to get to that but before we do let's let's maybe go back just a little bit and how did you find the BRZ in the first place is is this your first subaru is, you know what what uh what got you into the seat in the first place
1: yeah i actually have a very uh boring car history um so my first car was uh 2003 Volkswagen Golf. And uh it was a manual, um, okay. but it had 150 horsepower at the crank. Who knows what it was at the wheel? Mm-hmm. Um and uh I had that car for 15 years. Um, so wow. quite a long time. Um part of that time I lived in New York City, so it was um back in California where I'm from. Um and I had a second car uh, in New York for uh, 11 months which was uh, a lease takeover and that was a, a bmw x2 not okay. a very uh not a very sporty car despite it being uh, a bmw um and then i i moved back to california and um kind of at that point had an opportunity to finally uh explore an interest of mine for a long time which was uh tracking a car and you know driving a car at the limit um okay so i I actually kind of grew up with racing in my family. So my, um, my grandfather uh, raced uh, jalopies on dirt tracks in, in San Diego uh, mm-hmm. back in the day. And uh, my uncle uh, raced on on dirt tracks as well. And then my grandfather actually um, started building racing engines uh, and cooling mm-hmm. for my uncle. Um, and then my grandfather built racing engines kind of for the rest of uh, his professional uh, professional life. Um, and built racing engines for the Baja 1000 and uh, Baja 500. Oh, wow. um, so I was always kind of surrounded by it, um, but didn't really have an opportunity uh, until more recently to, to get into it myself. Um, and so, yeah, I knew, OK, I, I want to um, I want to start going to the track. I want to you know, learn how to drive um, well at the limit. Um, and so um, I actually started with autocross and then got into track after that. Um, which I know you guys have talked about in the past as well mm-hmm. um it's it's a, yeah, it's a
0: starting starting path for for many many people
1: yeah yeah um but yeah it was basically for me I knew I wanted something that um, was going to be approachable um, approachable at the limit um and so uh BZ was kind of at the top of the top of the list um, I was actually also considering uh, an mx5 uh, miata oh yeah mm-hmm. and uh, for various reasons it was ironically easier for me to get a 2022 BRZ than than the Miata at the time. Okay. Um, supply chain stuff wasn't
0: Was this in 2022? Like did, uh, did This was one?
1: in late 2021 actually. So I okay. I have a very early car. Um wow. the build date is uh 10 21. Okay. Um and yeah, so I ended up having an opportunity there was a <clears throat> there was a car coming to a dealer uh, nearby. And I called him on the phone and reserved it uh, sight unseen and, you know, drove it around a little bit and it, it kind of checked all the boxes um, that I, that I was looking for. So um, nice. yeah, it was actually a fairly easy decision at that time.
0: Well, and, and those early cars, I mean, those, those first BRZs to roll off the trailers, I mean, those were hard to get. So you were, you were fortunate to, to stumble into one like that. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Well, and so it sounds like you, you got the BRZ with the whole idea in mind of of Lord needs to drive and taking this car to the track. Yeah. Um how how long did it take you to actually do that? Or was it something that that came pretty close after uh, just getting the delivery of the car?
1: No, it it took me a while. So um I probably didn't get it on to my first track that I took it to was Button Willow and okay. it was almost it was almost a year before I did that, but I did a handful of that. I started autocrossing it in March of 2022. Okay. Um, so I did a handful of autocross events um, before before I took it to the track. Um, and then since then I've been going to kind of, since I took it to the track, which was in, I think it was in November of 22, okay. uh, I've been going kind of one to two track events uh, per month since then. Wow. So I have, have kind of, Try to go up that curve quickly. Still pretty humble uh, about uh, what I need to learn and, and things okay. like that. But have also done um, have also done a fair amount of uh, sim racing uh, or okay. or you know sim mm-hmm. uh, practice in order to to learn the car dynamics and things like that.
0: Just just out of curiosity, what uh, what is your sim game of choice?
1: Um, so if I want to. Try to simulate the car that I'm actually driving. I use a set of corsa. Um, okay. and then I do iRacing and stuff for fun as well. Okay. Excellent.
0: Yeah. Um and then I guess just that's that is an inroad for for many of us and uh for sure. And it's you know, sim racing is it's it's reasonably or or more attainable uh for, for so many of us to to go out there and play with. When you finally took the car into track. How how did you feel or did you feel like that prepared you? Did it did it kind of like was it was it not as stressful and not as surprising to take the car on the track for the first time? Or do you think that there's there's a real sim racing is one thing and rate and actually driving on the track is different and like they're they're kind of related, but they're not maybe as related as as some people might think?
1: Yeah, I think the thing that it was really helpful for me um to experience on on a sim is understanding track layout and kind of which gear I need to be in and, um, breaking points and things like that. So when you get on the track, um, it feels familiar. It feels, um, like you're not, you know, learning the, the very, you're not learning navigation and orientation on the track. What I, I don't think I was really prepared for is just the feeling of lateral G and the -hmm. feeling of, uh, I still have stock seats in the car. So the feeling of being somewhat unsupported, um, right. I also have a pretty narrow torso, so there's actually quite a lot of room for me to, sliding to around. Kind of and, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that I think, in my first couple track days, I wasn't really at the limit, even though I thought I was, just because of um, I think that that feeling of okay, one, there's there's much higher consequence obviously than in the sim, but also just physically, like you know, it feels like I'm yeah. at the limit, even if even if my tires aren't quite there yet.
0: Yeah, there's. It's. I mean, it it makes sense. Like in in a simrig at your house, there's not the, there's not the movement, and you don't have the extra sensory stuff like of what else is going on in the car the, the, the smells and and the movement, and all that jazz. But uh, yeah, it's yeah. There, there's a lot of important pieces to it, and I think yeah, it, they're they're both very fun in their own right for sure, and and one usually leads to the other. Yeah, it just kind of depends on with you know where people start with it. Totally. Um. So once you once you started tracking the BRZ, I mean what was what were your initial impressions? Like were you like this is this is everything that I expected? It's working just the way that I had hoped, or you know, what what were your thoughts?
1: Um I mean basically, yeah, I think it was uh I I felt like I had enough power um for for what I was for my skill level. Um I kind of heard a lot of people. Talking about the torque dip and the a little bit uh, of the lack of power in the previous generation uh, platform, um, and I I actually still haven't driven a previous generation uh, BRZ like okay. uh, at all actually, um, okay. but for me that was never really a problem. I mean, yeah. there are certain straightaways that you know you can always you can always have more power, but um, sure. that's not my limitation uh, for sure um and it was also my first um uh rear-wheel drive car um and so that was uh I would say somewhat of a new experience but I think I had done enough time in the sim to generally understand it and then I think really learning how to understand and and have good car control is something that I'm still working on and and want to uh want to get more experience with um but I I felt like it was uh kind of a fairly intuitive learning process with with a car.
0: Yeah. And i fair to say that you you pretty much had fun right out of the gate. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Nice. So so we've got to talk about the elephant of the room. So at some point, I'm guessing there was some some kind of kernel of inspiration to to make you go, I wanna, I wanna I think there's something going on here. Um and to explore it and I guess maybe as a starting point, what was that initial inspiration to kind of not just get out there and drive the car, not just working on driving the car, but actually get some kind of method to collect data and actually get a picture of what the car is doing, what the engine is doing as you're driving it on the track in addition to taking it to the track and utilizing it that way.
1: Yeah, so this kind of coincided with me moving up to the Bay Area um, from San Diego um, where I was before. and i think i while i was in san diego at that time the kind of biggest issue was was the rtb issue and um let's
0: let's explain that just just in case there's somebody that's not familiar with what that
1: was yeah so there's uh instead of using o-rings or other types of gaskets in various parts of the engine they use a liquid kind of adhesive or sealant um in order to to seal different parts of the car together so um cam care uh cam covers and the oil pan and things like mm-hmm. that. Um and people were dropping the oil pan and seeing that this RTV had collected inside of the oil pickup. Um and it when you see pictures of it it looks quite scary. It's kind of blocking the the passage of oil. Right. Um and then you you can once you learn a little bit more about it, you learn, okay, there's a little bit more to this. There's a five-sided screen that's uh, that kind of is designed to collect various materials that that may end up there and prevent them from circulating the oiling system. Um, and so even if there's some coverage on that uh, that face that's immediately visible, uh, there's still a pathway for for oil um, to pass around it. Um, and the amount of RTV, uh, the sealant that gets trapped there is different in basically each car. Um, so I had kind of been seeing some of this, was somewhat concerned about it, but not really enough to to drop the pan and and yeah. uh, look at it myself.
0: And the, the other thing that's worth mentioning here is this, so, so using RTV silicone to seal parts of the engine and the oil pan and stuff, that is not anything new. Subaru has been doing that right. for many, many years, going back to the EJs and all that. But the thing that was new is having like it, what the assumption was is that too much was applied initially. And like when you've got two surfaces that are coming down, if you've got too much uh, sealant between those two surfaces, it kind of gushes out on the sides. And what can happen when you've got that basically a, a, a glob on the side, as it gets hot, as oil and stuff is moving around, it potentially could get knocked off. And then that's where potentially there's these pieces of silicone that like dislodge from, you know, one of these mating surfaces and then it's in the oil and, and that's what people were seeing and, and that's with these with these new fa24 engines that was something that was basically a new occurrence yeah. and that's what got people's attention when they when people started to to drop these pans and, and figure this stuff out
1: yeah and it's even not just super who's using the seal sealant it's porsche and lots of other manufacturers Tons, as yeah well. it's very yeah. standard yeah, yeah. Um, so
0: so was that the was that the inspiration to kind
1: of no, no get not better really picture? that was that was the kind of like first reliability concern that that I became aware of and I actually talked to my grandfather about it and um you know you have to be you have to be still somewhat aware that that is a a failure mode of the car um the the other time that we saw this um was in the previous generation car after the valve spring recalls. Some of them oh, yeah. were having excessive RTB applied. And mm-hmm. there were failures that were kind of uh, as far as I understand, like definitively, definitively caused by um RTB in, in those pickups. So it is a it is a potential problem. Um, but it wasn't enough of a problem. I, I figured, okay, if this is the case, like I'm very likely to be covered under warranty. And so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do anything about it. Um sure. when I moved up to the Bay Area, then um really quickly I got kind of assimilated into a, a group of uh of friends who are all tracking uh the same car oh sure and um it was really a lot of their their research that um uh I'm kind of backpacking onto in a way uh um, okay uh and so there was particularly two drivers um who all the way back I think it was um November of of 2022 so at the time that I was giving up for my first track day, they had essentially already discovered this issue. Hmm. Um, and uh, so they had figured out a way to um, install the sensor and get that analog signal converted to a digital signal and injected into the to the CAN bus, um, which we can explain later, I guess. Yeah, because uh, there's, all, there's more. a lot to yeah. that. Um but they had kind of already figured this out. And in my um, in my last video where I walked through the Killer Bee um, experiment, and uh, I, I gave a little bit of the background of the history of of the um, development of that product, and it's intertwined with the story of okay. um, first discovering that there was this issue. So one of the the drivers who goes by uh, No Street Racing 86 on uh, YouTube, mm-hmm. so he had posted on. Um, the FT86 club forum that, Hey, we've observed this issue. Here's a YouTube video documenting it. And it's a, a video of him, uh, on, I think at that point, just one track, but he, he actually had several tracks and, and, and showed this problem. Okay. Um, and the Killary motorsport folks were one of the people that, that were kind of talking back and forth with him about, um, about the issue. And, um, It's funny in that thread you can see initially their responses oh this may be related to um the uh, valve timing and things like that and then he uh the representative from killer b had actually missed the video and so then when he watched the video he said oh this looks like a this looks like a real problem like um, yeah like significant
0: and i guess at this point I should say two things. One is, I'll put links to both of your videos, the most recent videos one where you have the documentation of of the issue and then the, the killer bee video that you mentioned um, in, in the description. But if you haven't watched those yet, this might be a good opportunity to pause this video, go back and watch those. They're, they're very well done, very informative, but they're not terribly long. And then once you have that backstory, then come here. The other thing I should say is what we're talking about here this problem that you're mentioning is not the rtv silicone this is something else so maybe like kind of fill in the details of of this this new concern that you was brought to your attention
1: yeah great great point um yeah so what those um those initial videos were demonstrating um is a pretty noticeable drop in oil pressure in certain conditions and so um one i think that the baseline was the, when you're at above 4,000 RPM, the oil pressure in this car, um, tends to be around 60 PSI. Um, and then we'd see a significant, um, divergence from that kind of nominal 60 PSI number, um, in right-hand corners. And it's not exactly as straightforward as every right-hand corner. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's particularly right-hand corners that, have rapid uh, lateral acceleration d- direction changes so you can think of like s's mm-hmm. um, or we see it a lot in crests of hills um and right-hand turns either like immediately following that or like included in that in that corner um, and so you know there's various turns Laguna Seca I think it's turn four that we see it. Sonoma turn two we see it and then Thunder Hill is, my videos kind of exclusively mm-hmm. cover Thunder Hill right now. Um, and that's because it's uh, kind of a very accessible place to test this, the, the cost sure. is, is cheaper to, to run cars there. Um, Thunder Hill, we see it in, in a lot of turns. there's kind of a number of different track layouts that you can do at Thunder Hill. There's an East track and a West track, and then there's a combined layout where you go on both of those tracks with connectors in between. And so there we see it on turns three East, turns five East, um, and we see it on the connector between the two. And then we see it at, um, turn five West and we see it at turn eight West. So as you're going around that track, you're dropping into, you know, thirties. Uh, so that's like half the pressure that we expect. And then you're even dropping into twenties and mid to low twenties sometimes in some of those corners. Um, and so this this was kind of like a these friends had already basically like discovered this problem
0: and, and um, let's because you said uh no street racing 86 is one of them who is like who Who else other, do we want to yeah, mention
1: yeah great great call the other one is uh track and build on YouTube okay um and they both have their own videos uh kind of documented this problem um when I got involved the initial way that I uh kind of got involved as I just volunteered to test the product for killer B and then okay. um no street racing uh offered to to build me the same uh can injection so this way of taking the analog signal and injecting okay. it into the can feed um, I had already purchased the aim uh, solo 2 so I had the ability to log data um okay and he said okay I can help you get the instrumentation um sorted out on your car So that way you can do this testing. That's Um,
0: the data that you guys got is that is what is so cool and so compelling because I think, boy, I mean, things like this they're starting to become available. A lot of this kind of data acquisition, when you when you what's different here is like people with access ports, you've been able to data log for a long time, but it's all sensors that. It, it it has to be something that the the car came with. You can't really add something to it to data log. Uh, like some for for a little while, you know, O2 sensors or, or wideband could be could be plumbed in, but that was about it. Mm-hmm. So so the ability to kind of like pick and choose a sensor, like I want to look at oil pressure and just put it in there, and then data log it was challenging. So like you what you what you've done, like it, it's very cool that you were able to find a way, or or they you all were able to find a way to take a sensor, add it to the engine. And then, yeah, you know, like I said, inject it onto the CAN bus, onto this basically CAN network in the car, so you can actually data log it. Because this is, so in, in some ways, it's kind of a new frontier where you don't have to really empirically look at things after the fact to try and run down what is going on, what's happening. The ability to see live data and and then correlate it to the car and track, which is what you what you've done in your videos, and I assume they did as well. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it's like that. It it makes the situation so much clearer um yeah. and that that's what's so interesting
1: yeah i think that's what's so powerful about it is a lot of people um if you look at facebook groups or forums they were saying based on anecdotal data of a couple of different failures that i've seen and and i even mentioned in the video that was part of the inspiration for me um getting involved in the first place was mm-hmm. anecdotal failures but there was uh um there was one podcast in particular that i that i um that i listened to and uh someone said you know once we see 200 of these failures they'll they'll believe that there's a real issue mm. and that was also one of my motivations to to make the video is one that's a very slow way to to learn that there's a problem um and it's a very expensive way to learn that there's a problem, and it may not even be possible. Like it's very difficult for anybody other than the manufacturer to really know what the failure rate of these cars are. Sure. You rely on basically volunteer uh, submissions of uh, failure cases, and then even if you do that, you have um, you can get invalid data if people are lying about it. So it's it's a very difficult and slow way to yeah. to learn, I think, and so it's one of the things that is is uh I think pretty unique and and cool about um being part of this community in the Bay Area of people who are tracking is there is a there's a very high representation of uh, people with either mechanical engineering backgrounds or mm. software engineering backgrounds and so uh you know we're kind of more wired to say okay how do we actually uh how do we actually prove that there's a problem and how do we find that problem as early as possible? Um, so yeah. my my background is in software engineering and um you try to you try to find bugs in your in your software as early as possible. If you have sure. to ship them all the way to production in order to find that there's a bug and you know impact users, then you're gonna you're gonna cause a lot more problems. And it's it's actually gonna be harder to track down those bugs once you're in a production environment than if you can do things like. You know, write unit tests that prove that your code works beforehand. So it's a lot of the same kind of methodology that that goes into it and thinking process of, okay, if there's an issue, um, is there a way that we can identify, you know, at least a contributing factor to this issue mm-hmm. and do it in a way that's, um, that's much further upstream? And so that, yeah. that was, I think, what was so appealing to this approach as opposed to just, you know, waiting for failures.
0: For sure. I mean, it's, and, and again, it's like the, the data is compelling and yeah, you, you basically, you're using the exact same approach and, and applying it to this circumstance. And, and this is what is, this is what is giving the community like a leap forward because like you you mentioned, Killer B is, is a, is a great company to work with. I mean, they, they specialize in all things oil delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to, to have that kind of data, to get it onto their radar, so now that they can have their engineering team start to look at the cars and, and what they can think the problem is. Um yeah, I mean it's it's one of those things where somebody's gonna find a solution here. And and having the data to basically get the attention and the focus on like what, what needs to be looked at, how you can collect the data, what, what data you really need to pay attention to, and then any kind of solutions, which you know we can get to here in a bit to actually put them into practice, put them into testing and see like, okay, did it actually make a difference? You know what you're looking for. You know the performance that you're trying to reach. It's just gonna speed the process for either Subaru and or the aftermarket to get to the point where, okay, now we've got the resolution. Now the now the car is working better. Now the, you as the enthusiast can go out there, you know, apply this fix and, and go out there and enjoy the car more and have hopefully better peace of mind about
1: the whole thing. Yeah yeah and that's that's really important as well the the kind of having the control and then the experiment data there to say um did this attempt at a mitigation actually work yeah um a lot of the when I put out the first video we didn't have an attempt at a mitigation we were just describing a problem right um and at that point um there were there were a lot of comments on on the video which were oh just add a baffle you have to add a baffle to all track cars it's Mm -hmm. it's normal this isn't like a new problem um and then you have videos um or you have uh comments saying the only solution is dry some and Mm -hmm. really we just don't know um yet there may be a there may be a baffle that we can put in um but uh no street racing and and track and build now each have baffles in their car Mm -hmm. and it's not just that you grab any baffle off any shelf and you put it in and it's solved the problem they've shown, you know, in certain conditions, there's, there's slight improvements, but it's Mm -hmm. definitely not solving the problem to the extent that we're comfortable with. Um, so they may, they may also be, uh, uh, like taking those baffles out and trying new ones um, in addition to me. Um, and then, you know, when we find something, uh, then, everyone can can just go straight to that one and not have to do all the, the testing for themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah, That's... and then I guess one other thing just about the the mitigations and the way that we're going about it is, um, you know, my my opinion, there's there's also been a lot of suggestions. Oh, just put an acu-sump on and then you'll mm-hmm. be good. So oil accumulator. Um, but I think first, it, I'm kind of thinking about it in stages, which is mm. if we can find a purely physical mechanical solution um which would be a baffle that at least improves things then you know then we give people some options of saying right well if you want to also add an accuSump, you have baseline better oiling before the accuSump is involved so that's always good um or if you don't want to have the additional kind of failure points and complexity of having an accuSump in the system then you know maybe you can get away with just the baffle um, and then some people, once there's a solution available commercially, will probably want to go all the way to a dry sump. Mm-hmm. But again, there's a huge range of, you know, if we're if we're doing this work not just for ourselves but for the whole community, then we want to be able to provide, you know, useful mitigations for people on different budgets and with yep. different appetites for complexity.
0: Yeah, I mean, complexity is a is a huge consideration, and it and it's very easy to be kind of nonchalant about how much complexity something like an acusimp or or especially a dry sump brings to the party Mm -hmm. um i can tell you from a dry sump standpoint it's a lot it's a lot but it's well worth it once you do it but it's something where like for a street car there's i I mean i would never recommend to try and install a dry sump on a car that didn't come with it from the factory on a daily driven car or street driven car because there's just the, the oil tank, the oil lines, there's so much to it, um, that it's really not, it's not, it's not optimal to add to some kind of, to a, to a street car. Um, yeah. and a lot of times there's, there's concessions that you're making to get everything to fit with the dry sump that just wouldn't, I would not, I would not want to make all these concessions on my daily driven street car. Um, totally. I'm sure that there's like a couple of people out there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, to, to, each their own. And, and, to a certain extent with an sump like, um, Less invasive, a little bit easier to install, but it still brings complexity to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's a, there's got to be some kind of a mechanical thing. I mean, and again, like you guys did such an impressive data collection for the baseline that it like you really kind of pinpointed where the problem is, and like kind of the proof that to me the proof that something like an AccuSump, well, it would solve the the problem for a track car shouldn't be there should be another option there is the fact that it's only right hand turns if if everything's working fine on the left hand turns and it's only on the right hand turns then it's got to be something in the geometry something in the build something in the layout that is being like the failure condition being only one side like if it was if it was either way
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know maybe more likely that something like an a would be essential but the fact that it's just one turn that makes me feel like there's got to be some kind of change modification what have you that will then get it to the point where you get similar oil pressure behaviors in in both corners, and then at that point, that should be good for the for the majority of, of the people out there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but we we're now um, we're now working on something, or there's something in the works um, that that we are hopeful will be a, another mm-hmm. uh, kind of possible mitigation that we can test out and, and hopefully have something else there um, to look forward to. Yeah, Um, But I guess one other thing that I just wanted to mention about some of the motivation behind um, what we're doing is one, there was this idea that, um, you know, we we should just wait for more failures to occur. But Mm -hmm. the other idea was, you know, if you're, if you're not an advanced level driver and you're not on, you know, 200 treadwear tires or, or even grippier tires than that, then you don't really need to worry about it. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we when I was hearing people say that, I already knew that that wasn't really true um, mm-hmm. because I was able to um, cause these pressure drops to occur um, to there there is a matter of extent here and we could talk about that as well. Sure. Uh, but I was able to cause these pressure drops to to occur within my first 10 track days and on quite low grip tires. Um, okay. the tires that we're using are, Um, GT radial Champiro sx2 um, and uh, my car and no street racing 86 car have uh, 225 tread width so these are it comes out of the stock the stock tread width is uh 215 on uh on the uh, ps4 tires Mm -hmm. uh, from Michelin and we don't have we don't have scientific evidence to to prove this but we think that grip levels very similar uh, between these two tires and the sx2 arguably have even less uh grip than than the um than the oem tires it's a little bit confusing uh to to people because there's this treadwear rating and the uh sx2 treadwear is um 260 Mm -hmm. and i don't remember i think the ps4s might be 320 or something like that yeah Um, but treadwear is a little bit—it uh, can be misleading if you're making comparisons across different manufacturers. Yeah,
0: it's there's it doesn't it doesn't mean nearly as much as it used to. There's uh, like for a lot of time attack, uh, some of the groups limit you to 200 treadwear tires, and then for better or for worse, probably for both, uh, some of the tire manufacturers that really wanted to cater and be involved in time attack said, well, we're going to stamp a 200 on there. But we're going to put whatever rubber we want onto this tire. And then, you know, people figured out like, oh, like the really sticky 200 treadwares are like the uh, uh, Yokohama like AO52s and, and uh, one of the Advans or Advan AO52s. And yeah, just like they figure out these handful of treadwear, 200 treadwear tires that are like super sticky, like within two seconds of a racing slick sticky but they're 200 treadwear it's like yeah there's between tire size and tire rating it's it's kind of the wild west out there right now
1: yeah my my understanding is there is like a government mandated test that they do and then they have to score a certain amount for like the longevity of the expected life Mm -hmm. span of that tire and it's extrapolated out from test which is you know not covering uh tens of thousands of miles but if they if they're uh rating is that, let's say they last for um, 10,000 miles, Um, and so um, hypothetically, Mm -hmm. they're perfectly able to market it as a tire that only lasts for 5,000 miles as well. So that's how sometimes you could get a tire with lower grip that- It's entirely possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And also the the compounds, maybe you can make a stickier tire that lasts longer now than you could 10 years ago. Uh, That's true. that too. Um, yeah. they they've gotten more advanced in in general. But yeah, these these tires are not that we're using are pretty comparable to stock tires. And so that was also an important thing that um you know, I was a motivation behind making the video is there's a there some things that we knew from doing this test that weren't broadly known in the community mm-hmm. and so we just wanted um uh people to to kind of understand I guess the things that we we had learned.
0: Yeah. And and it's good that you know that and but then we're able to showcase that because then that kind of get paints a much clearer picture of like if if anybody else that's watching this that's watched your videos that has a brz that wants to track it like how much should you be paying attention to this and you know obviously it's, it's worth it's worth paying attention to no matter what your skill level no matter if you're keeping the 100 stock tires on the car and that's as far as you want to go it's it's something that's worth it's worth paying mind to
1: yeah yeah Yeah, my goal is definitely not to to scare people away from the car or you know my goal is also not to say oh um you know to to throw shade on a manufacturer and and say you know anything about uh about their ability to do engineering and things like that it's certainly not the goal the goal is just to say this is what we've learned about the capabilities of the car yeah um as most of the people in the community um will be driving it um and so they're and the, the video was really originally intended for people who are taking their car to the track so sure it's why uh there's an oil cooler on these cars and mm-hmm. we state that but you know we're not we're not really trying to prove it on the street we're not trying to prove it with uh 0w20 oil um, we're trying to say hey for people who are going to the track this is a this is a very light track build, and this is the the kind of like real data that, that mm-hmm. we're seeing about the oiling performance. Yeah.
0: So, I guess maybe maybe one like kind of regards in regards to that, and just kind of like the pullback big picture. So, so it sounds like it's it's basically three of you with uh, that have this this car, and then maybe a fourth that has the the other the the two liter BRZ is is another baseline. Yeah. Have any of you had any engine
1: failures to date? um no one in that particular group is but in the broader group um just in the local Bay Area kind of um group of people that I that I know there have been uh two failures in that group okay um one that happened uh I think it was not I don't exactly remember the date um probably about beginning of 2023 okay and that is still that is still kind of like an open case. Um, okay. these these failures are taking a long time to to be addressed, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um and then the other one happened more recently, and that car is um still in the process of uh being uh torn down. Um okay. and uh you know, manufacturers involved in that and the the dealers involved in that. Gotcha. And
0: and the reason I ask is just like context is another important piece of the puzzle. And and basically to exactly what you said you know it's you know this is something to be aware of but you know if you yourself are taking your car to the track say twice a month or 10 10 track days a year something like that and you've done that you've done at least 10 track days probably 20 or more at this point you know that there's this behavior that is not ideal but it has not caused an engine failure yet though the yet is kind of like the that's, that's the important part of that expression. What you're seeing is definitely something that's not ideal. It's definitely something that um, over time could there, there could be additive damage that's happening as a possibility. Um, but at the same time, you also have not had that failure because I, I think and the, the reason yeah. that I want to kind of frame it that way is is I think that the for, for a lot of us, the first time you take your car to the track, there, there, it can be a scary experience. There's there's a lot of excitement, but there can be a lot of fear to it. And when you have something like this that that crops up, it's it's like this extra um, thing that would be easy to kind of um, take over, take over your perspective about about what you're doing. And it could really certainly dissuade people um, from from taking any chance or going going at all in that direction.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: think that this is definitely something to be aware of. Certainly, but it's something where I don't think it should be something that completely stops everybody with a BRZ from tracking the car.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to keep the risk um, in proportion Mm -hmm. and anytime you're going on the track, you're accepting a higher degree of risk than you do, you know, driving the car in the street. Yep. Um, And so this is one component of that risk. And I think it's something that we can, we can do the work to try to minimize that risk, but you know, the track is a, is an environment with elevated risk in general yep. um and during the time that i've been going to the track i've seen you know incidents that have nothing to do with engine performance that that uh have occurred as well sure and so sure. i think it's just something that uh you have to you have to kind of be uh aware of that risk mm-hmm. and i would encourage people to to think about it and think about what their risk tolerance is and um you know as long as they can deal with the consequences of that there's there's multiple ways to deal with the consequences there's yeah. track day insurance um there's um you, you know some people may not push their their car as hard because they're thinking about it um or there's yeah. you know if you can if it won't be a life-changing event um obviously it, it's always life-changing when when something yeah. bad happens but for um, sure if you know, if you're going to still be able to pay your rent and and do what you need to do, then um, you can appreciate that risk, but then put it out of your mind when you're actually on the track. Yeah. And so I think, I think of this as one of several risks that, that exist mm-hmm. on track and for sure. Um, yeah.
0: Well, well, Having covered that, let's let's look forward. I mean, the, the the points of optimism to me are one, you've got a manufacturer like Killer Bee that is that is paying attention to this, that you're you're testing some products. Uh, I mean, it it sounds like the or from from watching the video of, of your results, you did not get uh, the degree of improvement that, that it was hoped, but, you know, sometimes you got to remember that Finding out what doesn't work is a really important step to finding out what does work. So things are still moving forward there. Um,
1: yeah.
0: And, and there's other manufacturers and other other people like like baffle plates and baffle design. I mean, there's it. It feels like there's a real opportunity. Somebody there, there's likely some kind of baffle design that's going to make a, a good improvement. Um, right. What what other things are on the horizons, or do you can you talk about any other causes for optimism?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of things that um, that we're looking at now. So after we we saw this test data um, come back from the killer B experiment day. Um, so I guess I didn't really explain the experiment um, in a lot of detail yet. But we took we took uh, my track out and we have um, or sorry, we, we took my car to Thunder Hill and we put it on the five mile uh, track and um, we also have uh, we had a FA20 that's owned by um, uh, a friend named Miles who's, who's in our kind of same community. And uh, we went out and tracked both those cars that same day. Um, and we were able to establish this baseline data. And then from No Street Racing, um, he, I'll get into a little bit more detail here, but he had already had um, a baffle installed. So we used an okay. earlier track day on Five Mile, um, sorry, on Thunder Hill West um, mm-hmm. for, for his car just so we had consistent, you know, uh, baseline data for for all three cars. And then um, I separately tested my car on uh, Thunder Hill Five Mile um, and I enlisted the help of uh, a local instructor, uh, Joe McGuigan, um, who's affiliated with, or he kind of runs, uh, or is one of the people who runs uh, a local track day um, organization called Speed SF. Um, And he basically volunteered to set baseline laps and then experiment laps later in my car. Um, So we were able to test with a number of different drivers. So you have me with about 10 track days of experience, um, no street racing, drove my car as well. And then we had uh, Joe uh, Mm -hmm. drive my car. And so we have very consistent lap times set um, before the experiment baffle was installed and then after it was installed. Okay. Uh, and we were able to look at that data and overlay it on top of each other um, and kind of see what the the performance looks like. And generally, I think the the um, overview of how that data looks is, one, the pressure drops are very consistent. So if you drive, mm-hmm. you know, with the same inputs on the same track, you will see effectively like the same pressure drops. Um, and so that gives us confidence that that test um has integrity and that is reproducible. Um, and then just as a maybe a side point, um just this week on uh on Facebook in one of the um the track groups, uh somebody uh, now forgetting uh the group that they're the they're with a, a kind of like tuner shop as well. Okay. Um but they they set up their own uh their own instrumentation. They use the same sensor and the same data logger, but everything in between uh, is, is different. Different, okay. Um, and they were able to, to show pressure drops as well. Um, and so that's that's great to see. Well, it's not great to see because they're pressure drops, right. um, but it validates the, the way that we've instrumented the car um, that we have an independent yep. person kind of having similar results. Um, so then when we went to the uh the second day with this uh, baffle installed we were able to see consistent results the drops weren't uh meaningful meaningfully different uh between right. the two and so that um that allowed us to basically eliminate this um the hypothesis that that Kilby uh, proposed and the hypothesis that they proposed was that the oil was surging forward into the timing cover um, right. on braking, and then kind of getting stranded there as you apply lateral G, and oil will slosh over to the side. Whatever oils in the timing cover, um, it there are ways for it to drain back into the sump or into the uh, yeah to the lower pan uh, mm-hmm. where the pickup is, um, but those may not actually be effective when there's that much lateral G applied. So the yeah. the idea was. It will reduce the oil volume in the sump, and it will uh, basically cause it to to starve quicker. Right. Um, if, if the oil is you know flowing up into the pickup and being distributed through the engine, um, that volume in the sump is going to be reduced to the point where the pickup won't have any more oil available to it. Um right. So that was the hypothesis. The fact that we found that the the mitigation that they designed didn't work. Um, it was, I think, a like you said, it's it's not the result that we were hoping for. We were hoping we could just publish, hey, we we found a yeah. we found a fix, you know. Um unfortunately it's not the case, but at least we're able to now focus on the thing that we think is the next most likely solution. Um and what we're thinking about right now is is actually a in some ways a more traditional baffle. Most of the baffles that are on the market right now for this product are just kind of one horizontal. Uh, sheet of, yeah. of metal with some perforations in it for oil return, um, and the idea would be that as the oil sloshes over to one side, it would be retained by by this horizontal um, component. But we've seen that that can improve things on flat right hand turns, but it's not really working when there's elevation change involved. Yeah, this so is there, kind of like
0: it's so there. There was a similar there's a similar product for like the EJ series engine and there's, there's a lot of love testing there, but now the new pans have gone to basically having vertical, uh, so that you're actually trying to like put vertical fences on either side of the pickup so that instead of just trying to keep the oil from crawling up the side of the pan itself and and granted in the BRZ, the pan is two pieces. There's like this upper block and then the actual lower pan that we're talking about here is fairly small, not, I'll I'll say shallow shallow is probably overstating it but like compared to an EJ pan shallow yeah. um so like putting that that flat plane there like it keeps it from crawling up the sides but like yeah the putting fences around the 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 pickup I mean that's that's a much more direct way to kind of keep the oil right at the pickup where you need it
1: yeah so in some ways it's a more traditional approach um for these engines and mm-hmm. um so th- that's kind of what we're what we're looking at now mm-hmm. um and so the idea is the horizontal baffle will try to keep some of the oil there but it can still slosh away so yeah. if you reduce the kind of volume of space that you're trying to contain and kind of because the other thing is that pickup is offset mm-hmm. we can we can kind of offset this chamber that we're able to create um, and so that's the idea that we're working on now there's there's one product on the market um, from a company called kazama mm. that is um has an interesting design that's uh that's doing something similar to this they have a single uh, partition vertical partition and it has a metal trapdoor that's a one-way door um so we thought that was really interesting and then one of the people in our group uh, who's a mechanical engineer um is actually working on his own design for this as well that's kind of inspired by some of these these things that we've seen work in other engines sure. and we've been looking at a lot of different engines going back to the um m96 engine that porsche made and then they later made this revision to it called the X5, x51 hmm. where they add, where they kind of modified some of the baffling in it so we're, we're looking at um what killer b has done in the past and and what porsche has done in the past and um trying to trying to learn as much as we can about how to approach this problem um but that's that's kind of in the works now and that, that'll be the uh the baffle that i try next Okay. Um, or if everything goes according to plan, that will be yes. about battle that I try next.
0: Nice. Well, and, and again, like it, this is the the great thing with with the very comprehensive set of baseline data that you have is like all of these do solutions. You're gonna like once something works, you're you're going. You all are going to be able to really definitively point to the fact that it works, and and that's that's what is so cool about. All of the work that you guys have done to collect all of this data. You, you basically have done a, a huge service to all, all of us in the community so that um, once the solution is found, we'll, we'll know it for sure. Um, in regards to testing, you you, would, you have a control oil, which is, I think, uh, Motul 8100 530 is right. the control for everything. Um, and you had mentioned... Just in in terms of other testing, are there? You'd mentioned trying different weight of oil. I think is one thing, and you'd mentioned, yeah. I think, uh, trying to overfill, like put more oil in. Are you are you still considering testing some of that, or or have you?
1: Yeah. So um, track and build um, on YouTube. So I'm basically because I'm trying to um, have my car be. Uh, set up in a way that we can test all these these baffles um and that was kind of the objective when when we went into instrumenting my car um okay. i'm gonna try to stick to this 5w30 oil but it's been really hot as the control yeah it, it, just to keep uh just to reduce the amount of variables um no street racing and track and build don't quite have that same constraint um sure. and so they've they've switched to 5w40 uh, mm-hmm. um and the idea there is it's been really hot here in California. So um, at the day of our test, it was uh, 170 degrees. Whoa. Uh, 107, just, yeah. To, yeah, just yeah. to be clear about that. Um, 107 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And so really the the temperatures that, that I was seeing, um, I would actually be more comfortable with uh, a thicker viscosity Um uh, or a higher viscosity oil mm-hmm. in those conditions, but it's it's hard to control these. Like the the best way, if we weren't self funding this, or we had support from a manufacturer, or just a bigger budget for this, we would be able to install the baffle on site and test it the yeah. same day. And but even then, you're getting variants from morning to afternoon. So so it's it's hard to to control these. Um, well, entirely and, and important to note, you are monitoring temperature
0: also. Yeah. So you, you have pressure and temperature, and so you can. So you have track position and and all of those other variables. So, you, like, uh, because I think you're getting up in the vicinity of two thirty to two forty. I think sometimes that you're a little bit over two hundred forty degrees oil temps. Right. So as yeah. long as you know that even if it's on a hot day, for the test lap, that the that the oil is in that same two thirty to two forty five window, that it would be reasonably comparable.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and Hard, so... harder to
0: keep it there if it's one hundred seven degrees out, but.
1: Yeah, we we can kind of choose the laps that have comparable temperatures as well. Um, so that, that's another thing that we can do. But what um, Track and Build has been able to do is he's been looking at some other uh, comparisons. So there were a lot of people who suggested, oh, you can switch to heavier weight and that might resolve things. Um, and so he posted on um, YouTube. There's, I guess, not, not too many people know about this, but some people know that you can make posts that are like... Mm-hmm uh more like a traditional social media post on uh youtube so he has some cool data visualizations that he's put together with his data um and he shows a direct comparison of 5w30 and 5w40 um, and we're able to show still consistent pressure drops um, maybe slightly uh better performance with 5w40 um Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not a it's not a magic bullet um for for um kind of solving things the overfill the the idea behind the overfill is if you have um oil uh, oil sloshing away from the pickup but you just increase the total amount of oil that's available um you may still be able to provide that pickup uh oil Uh, and so um we haven't done too much testing on this i did on our experiment day i did a half liter overfill at the Mm -hmm. end of the day um but i i was kind of exhausted by that point sure sure um so my times were not very competitive um overall we saw basically the same uh shape of like the the telemetry um if you look at the oil pressure but the magnitude of the drops were not as big Hmm. um and that's really due to the pace so okay it's something i mentioned earlier um where Hmm this is really um it's kind of like on any wet sump if you push the if you if you are able to generate enough lateral g you'll probably be able to create pressure drops eventually mm-hmm. and it depends yeah. on the layout of the engine and the geometry of the engine like you said um uh, mx5 miata engine uh there's a video that savage geese put out where dave coleman who's one of the engineers on, mm-hmm. that, uh, on that platform he uh, was talking about some of the design parameters. And he said that the Miata was designed for consistent oiling to 1.4 G. Okay. And so even on that engine, if you're generating 1.5 G that oiling pressure is probably not going to be consistent anymore. It's possible. And, yeah. And so, yeah, we don't have any data from Miata. So we don't know if the engineers achieve, achieve their objective or if they surpassed it, or we don't really know anything about, um, or I personally don't know anything mm-hmm. about the oiling performance of that um, that engine, but at least it's stated that their goal was one point four G. Yeah, yeah, um, and
0: you you have to assume that Subaru intended people to track this car, and I mean that's i the 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 hope is that Subaru's paying attention. I, I think I think it it's got to be safe to say at this point that they're aware of of the problem. I, I mean, somebody in Subaru somewhere is is aware of this um and that they would be you know trying to improve it i think i mean that's i think that's the hope for all of us is that they that they're they're i mean they have the engineers to design the car like they this didn't come out of nowhere and you know they've probably have a couple of guys that their whole specialty is oil pickups and oil pans so that i bet you their phones rang and like hey we need we need something something here figure something out so hopefully they'll they'll find a solution and and maybe even make it retroactively you know applicable to some of these cars just a just just a better oiling solution across the board there's got to be a there has to be a solution if the aftermarket can yeah. find it Subaru can find it too i bet
1: yeah yeah i hope so um it's certainly the case that their marketing um all points to them knowing that this is is a car that is going to be used on the track um oh, yeah. and in some of their launch marketing they have scott speed who's a driver mm-hmm. who's uh i don't know if he's a factory driver but he's somehow yes. affiliated with them yeah yeah um so he was he was taking a, a 2022 brz around thunderhill west um, mm-hmm. so there's actually a helicopter shot of it going through turn five which is one mm-hmm. of the uh one of the turns that we see pressure drops so um you know they 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 surely uh they've used it on the same track that we have so it's sure, not like we're sure. using this in a way that's that's like right unavailable to them
0: well and, and I'll tell you I mean I when they launched the car with the new 22WX and the BRZ I had the opportunity to go out to Utah Motorsports campus because that's where they were doing the arrival drives so everybody could come in and you could drive the BRZ around i think it was the east track and the WX on the west track and you know like you're not doing multiple laps i mean it was all very very controlled. They're not just like throwing you the keys and saying, have fun. That would have been awesome, but they didn't do that. <laughs> but they yeah. still you still, let us go out there. We drove it on the track. We drove both cars in a in a small autocross. I mean, and, and the whole purpose was to let the people that are going to be familiar with the car uh, and, and trying to sell the car, communicate what the car is like, communicate what the car can do to be able to experience it in that environment, because that's the environment that they that they designed and wanted the car to excel, in, and it and it does. I mean, it, they're mm-hmm. they're both really neat cars, uh, really fun to drive, great a great experience to drive. Yeah. So I think I think Subaru's got, you know, every bit as much motivation as any aftermarket company to pinpoint what's going on, do whatever they need to do to tweak it to get it to to be better, and then and then hopefully it'll be better for all of
1: us. Yeah, yeah, it's such a great car to drive, and you can drive it out of the box. Mm-hmm. Um, on track, you know, we've done some things to to make it more suitable for the conditions that we're specifically putting it into. And that that means, you know, inland California summer. Sure. Heat. Sure. Um, but if it's you know winter in in California, you don't really need the oil cooler even. Um, right. In, in a lot of conditions like, you know, again, everyone should do their homework understand the conditions monitor their temperatures if they're using it uh on the track and, and kind of make the decisions for themselves about about what they need to do to the car but I'm still on OEM suspension um I have just minor uh kind of camber and caster alignment changes on the front mm-hmm. the rear is entirely OEM uh the shocks are OEM so this is a car that's very capable and fun to drive and predictable to drive on the track like straight right out, out of out the box. so yeah. it's it's an amazing yeah. platform and in addition to that the running costs are are very affordable yeah um, you know if you compare this to um some other people in our group have you know other cars that they drive more on the street and one of them is a is a supra but mm. uh the owner of that car when he thinks about tracking the supra and looks at buying a set of tires um it's like three times the cost um and so the the consumables are so affordable on this platform that you can you instead of paying for tires you can go to more track days and so like for for a beginner like myself um that's that's a great formula and i want to keep doing that like you know people have asked me am I considering selling the car and getting something else as a result of this? And really, I just want to find a solution to be able to keep driving this car yeah. because I'm, I'm learning so much from it.
0: And it's going to happen. I mean, this, there's, there's too, there's too many people that this is on their radar. Now there's going to be a solution. Like there's probably going to be, I, I'll, I'll guess right now there's going to be three. I think there's going to two, two that come out and then maybe a third down the road. And, yeah. you know, it's, we're gonna we're gonna crack this. the the aftermarket the super community aftermarket is just so good at at figuring these things out and, and and finding out what the solution is. and and what you all have done is is again just collected all of this data to really like give people give the aftermarket and hopefully super too a razor's focus on this which guys got to look at. Yeah. And and that's where that's what's gonna make the solution come much sooner than if it was just like I said a lot of like anecdotal evidence. Like well. You know, 100 people tracked their BRZs, and there was five of them. that had engine failures. Like, what? Well, what was it? Was it uh, somebody was using the wrong weight oil? They tracked. They they got the car too hot. Like, what? What was it going on? You know, there's when there's not data, there there can always be speculation. And you guys have taken that speculation and completely wiped it off the board. And like, you no, know, this is this is what you got to look at.
1: Yeah, yeah, and yeah. If we can, if we could find that solution and then you know people know okay i can get the car and there's this you know one or two modifications that i have to do and then it's going to be reliable on track that's going to be a great place to be in
0: for sure i i did have one other question that i wanted to throw out which is oil analysis have you guys considered doing any oil analysis as part of all of this testing
1: yeah so i've been doing oil analysis um basically ever since i started tracking the car um so I did my first two oil changes I've done a lot of oil changes for my car 11,000 miles on it yeah. um I did the first two uh they were included uh when I purchased the car and, and uh, at that time I just was doing uh some autocross so I just went with the, the Subaru 020 uh, mm-hmm. oil so I don't have uh oil analysis from those cha- those first two changes but since then um first I went straight to 300 v um so mm-hmm. motorsports oil 5w30 um and then since then I've uh chosen 8100 um uh EFE uh and that's a 5w30 mm-hmm. and um I guess a couple things about and and so yeah to answer your question I've done uh, oil analysis so far things are kind of within expected Tons. parameters okay um the molly uh count on uh the motul oils is much higher than than 0w20 so when people ask me do you do you think about adding a friction modifier um or you know Sarah or these types of things I say well I don't really have evidence to say that that is going to improve the performance and I know that right these oils that I'm using are formulated specifically and have higher molly counts already so this is this is
0: why you use good oil
1: yeah yeah so I don't really feel the need to to add those and then just one other thing about oils is some people have said you know you need to be running a motorsports oil otherwise you're going to have a failure on track and one of uh my friends who is in our in our local group here and had a failure had run 300b for the entire duration of his his track time so Mm -hmm. again it's an anecdote be careful with anecdotes but yeah, 300B is not going to you know magically solve your problem. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we need to, to find a real solution. But what we have done is we were, um, there are some other people, including No Street Racing, who are using the same oil. Um, and so that was the 8100 uh, Motul oil. And so that's also useful for uh, our comparison. But um, there are some specific things that went into that choice. So we looked for an oil that had a high um, HTH, s rating um and so that's a test that they do to see how the oil performs at high temperature and mm-hmm. high shear conditions um, and these are conditions that would match effectively like what the bearings are going to be experiencing um, in the engine um and so we we're looking for those types of things um it's hard to find concrete evidence that says you know this this rating is directly related to your, you know, likelihood right. of of uh, a spinning a bearing. But, um, we're kind of doing whatever we can in order to make sure that we're, um, uh, preparing ourselves adequately for the yeah. conditions that that we're going to put these cars in.
0: Well, and if I and if I heard correctly, so. It co- other than, than testing the oil for like the elements in the oil, the viscosity of the oil, how it is held up to the temperatures and so forth, they can look for uh, contents of certain metals yeah, exactly. in the bearings to see like, so like um, wh- another reason to do oil analysis on a car that you're tracking a bunch is like, if you start to see a, an increase in certain alloys that are present in the bearings, um, then that can be an indicator that, okay, like sometimes you'll, you can see in an oil analysis that you're already on the road to a bearing failure before you see kind of like glitters and sparkly stuff in the oil itself. Yeah, and so it sounds like you're not seeing a huge increase in those alloys yet.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm not. Um, okay. There is. So what I I'm not an expert in this area, um, and maybe useful caveat. Uh, like i said i was a software engineer or i'm a sure. software engineer i'm not a mechanical engineer i don't have any specific background in engine uh, yeah.
0: and I'm, uh, I'm not an expert either but yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah um but what i've heard is the used oil analysis will detect um metals that are kind of very small and suspended mm-hmm. in the in the oil so if you're seeing you know um actual debris in your in your oil when you're changing or Um, you know, that's not going to be picked up in the tests. Hmm. Um, so you have to kind of take it for, uh, take it with a little bit of grain of salt, but it's at least something I, the reason I'm doing it is if I do have a failure, I want to be able to look at that data and say, was this detectable previously? Um, Mm -hmm. you know, at least that will provide me with more knowledge than I had before. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm not looking at that data and saying, you know, well, I feel very confident that I won't have a failure as a result of it, but I am uh it's better than not knowing anything. For sure.
0: And and yeah. it's I mean, especially knowing that you guys have that information, definitely hold on to it. Don't lose track of it. And then yeah. you know, yeah, there there could be a point where that becomes really helpful and relevant as well. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the last thing and then I've I've taken up a lot of your time. And so so thank you again, Brian, for for coming on chan with us here. Um because we talked about this a little bit before we actually started recording, I wanted to, to touch on it at least before we wrap up here, which is the question of short shifting. Yeah. Because one of one of the other things that that uh, I've noticed and, and, and Ken, you mentioned as we were getting ready to start is that you know where you guys are shifting is pretty much close to red line and that's where you're seeing the pressure drop. And you you had an interesting piece of information regarded regarding RPM in, in this car.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the flow um, of oil is proportional to RPM, and so at high RPMs, there will be higher flow um, mm-hmm. of oil through the engine. So what we've found, and and what we've kind of been thinking about, is essentially at um, you know, when you're close to red line, that's the maximum flow that's gonna be going through the engine. Because but the pump you...
0: the pump is driven by the crank.
1: So that the exactly. faster
0: that the crank, the, the faster that the engine is spinning, the faster that the oil pump is spinning. They're they're connected. That's one of the reasons in to a certain extent you would go with the dry sump because you actually can disconnect the oil pump rotor from the crank and you can independently control them. But
1: yeah, not exactly. not, not
0: the case with the stock car.
1: Yeah. Um, so as you get to those higher rpms flow is good like uh this is maybe something that we can mention too is oil pressure does not protect your engine oil flow protects your engine it's just that it's very hard to measure oil flow and mm-hmm. so we have tools to measure pressure and they're much you know cheaper and and less invasive to instrument so um and and the reason that is is if you board out all the passages in the engine to be twice as big um you would have significantly less oil pressure even if you have the same flow um but if you uh think about like what that greater flow does at higher rpms is it's going to be pulling whatever oil is in the sump and putting it into the engine faster and then you're relying on the oil returning to the sump and um, oil return to the sub is affected by lateral g mm-hmm. so if that return is not fast enough at a higher flow you will reach starvation faster essentially
0: right and, and in part this is this is where the rationale for overfilling comes from is exactly. it so it's so like you 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 put your dipstick or you measure your dipstick oil level when the car is off and it's sitting and, and you pull it out and like let, let's just say you, you knew what that line was in the oil pan. Then you start the car. Well, now the engine is spinning. The pump is pulling oil out of the sump. The, the Basically, the, the sitting level of the oil is going to drop some because now oil is being pulled from the bottom of the pan. It's being sent through the engine to do its job. Once it comes out the other end, it has to return. So there's there's a different equilibrium level when the engine is just running at idle compared to when it's off and everything is yeah. back. And and once you start driving it on track and the engine RPM start increasing, that equal, equilibrium level can can go down further, and yeah. that's where the rationale of putting in an extra half quart or or some amount to basically raise the the the, the sitting uh, equilibrium level will also raise all of those other inter uh, equilibrium levels in kind in theory.
1: Yeah, that that would actually be a fun test to do is actually take measurements of the with the dipstick just at uh uh you know cars off sitting there with mm. engine uh with engine oil cold warm and then maybe at idle and yeah. then you know maybe higher rpms as well just to see what it does
0: not not really accurate to get a dipstick meeting dipstick reading when the engine is running because of just all the the sloshing around that's yeah I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't know how it you
1: you wouldn't use it to say, "Oh, is my oil level correct?" But you might right. use it to say, "You know, is there? Um, yeah, I don't know. It, maybe there's oil running down the dipstick, and it, it's uh, it's not going to be useful anyway." Yeah,
0: or, or somebody out there listening. The other one I've seen this more with differentials, but people have been building clear uh, oil pans or clear diff covers so that you can, like, in a controlled environment, bring the RPM up or the speed up, and then if if your oil pan is clear, the oil, here's where it is you know
1: yeah that would be really cool and then
0: here's what happens yeah Yeah. so somebody out there just a suggestion
1: yeah but we've so we we thought of this um the short shifting uh idea and so we've actually tested it so we've done you know laps at Thunder Hill West for example um where we're going around turn five and um we're in third gear typically is is how I take that corner um but if you drop into fourth you can eliminate the pressure drop um, okay so it's it's not necessarily the solution that I want as um mm-hmm. you know someone who's trying to find a solution to this problem but the fact that you can drive around the problem um that may be worth considering uh for people who are you know want to track the car and want to reduce their level of risk you know you don't necessarily need to be um close to the red line to do a fast lap even um, there's there's a guy in our group who um whenever we look at his data he's almost always like a gear up from where mm-hmm, everyone else mm-hmm. is running and he's still really really fast um so mm-hmm. you can you can still do fast laps if you kind of learn how to drive in in that mm-hmm. way um, that's
0: really interesting
1: because yeah,
0: so, well that's that's a that's a really important piece of data there because then that's other so i mean the condition of the car is definitely a contributing factor but now knowing that if you just shift up shift up a gear so you're maybe 800 or 1000 rpm's lower in engine speed but then also in oil pump speed and and yeah. as you shift up a gear and your rpm's go down and the oil pump speed goes down it's either not drawing as much or or whatever the, the fact that that is also related to to this this dip that you're seeing that's that's interesting
1: yeah. Yeah, so it's I think it's um I think it's hard for people to really experiment with and understand unless they have oil pressure instrumentation mm-hmm. in their car, unfortunately. Yep. Um one, I guess there's a couple of things that I can mention there is one just knowing that is useful and if you if you're not on a fast lap then you know be in a low, be in a in a higher gear and mm-hmm. do less rpm and generally like if people want a rule of thumb we see the pressure drops most often above 6000 rpm sure okay so if you can be in a gear that you know prevents you from being above 6000 rpm and it's not it's not making a big difference to your time you may want to drive around it um mm. the other thing i guess a couple other things um one just if you're interested in learning a lot um getting any kind of data logging is very useful and I think it's also useful um, in case you have a failure like right now if you have a failure and you don't have data logging then the only entity with data about your car is the manufacturer they're going to have an engineer come and they're going to get black box data which is going to include um the max values for a couple different Mm -hmm. things like speed and RPM Mm um and you know it it makes sense that they do that they should do that and I would do the same thing if I were them Mm -hmm. you know they need to know did this engine get over revved um because if it was over revved um it that's operating outside of its design parameters Yeah. yeah um but for you to have data as well means that you you know, you're no longer in the dark about what happened to your car. And you can say, hey, I have data from every session on track. And this is the actual data that my car has experienced. And this is why it's not abuse. And Mm -hmm. this is why it's not, I wasn't drag racing with my car. Um, These are, you know, um, just, just track days for amateurs on on Mm -hmm. a track, and there's no abuse going on here. So sure, one, I think you're going to learn a lot about driving and you know, maybe you're one of the things that you can do with data is you can you can compare your actual lap times with your optimal lap times, which are composed of all these segments on track. So you can learn, OK, even if I'm only able to put down, you know, X time, my time optimally, if I compared, it, if I took the best of all these sectors is X minus two seconds or something. Yeah. So, you know, OK, yeah. I'm already driving in a way where I can be two seconds faster. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What's, and then, uh, oh, go ahead. Um, and then I think one of our goals as well, um, and our goals being this kind of greater community that I'm in is to make data, um, make oil pressure data more accessible to more people. So we, we don't really have a solution right now. The solution that is in my car, um, took, you know, hours of labor for Mm -hmm. no street racing, uh, to, to build. Um, and then, um, but if we can, he's, he's actually working on, um, creating solutions that will be very affordable for people to put in their own cars. So hopefully we'll be able to have, um, uh, solutions for people where they can kind of like drop these components in and have the same data available to them.
0: Sure. It's, it's funny, like having had a lot of conversations about cars and driving and taking a car to the track and and all that sort of things, there's, there's themes that come up and in data is one of those things that it just always keeps coming up. And, um, so for for us in our race car, we just put in a standalone. Then now like whatever sensors you want, you just run them to the standalone and it you just tell them what tell the standalone what the sensor is and it records it. So now in the race car we've got oil temperature, oil pressure, coolant temperature, coolant pressure, crankcase pressure, um, I think fuel pressure, like just this this whole slew of sensors that are doing nothing but looking at at what the engine is going on. Yeah, and so really we cool. we took it to the track for the first time a few weeks ago. Um, with our tuner so that we could basically get the car into operating condition. And, because one of the reasons that we put all the sensors on in the first place is so that we'll, now if we have all of this data that the ECU is seeing, we can set limits. So we can basically f- try and find out what normal is. And then if it get, if some of these values get abnormal, then we can actually have the ECU go into like a failsafe mode to protect the engine. Hmm. Um, and so we had to go out there and figure out what normal was and, and start playing around with some of these settings. And it was so enlightening. It, it's, it's basically what you're, what you're doing with oil, oil pressure and temperature to see the data in context is it is it's man, it's, it's a whole nother thing. Like an oil pressure gauge and oil temperature grade gauge are certainly helpful. Like, absolutely. Like if you if you don't have any gauges and you want to put a gauge on your car, oil temperature and pressure are probably the first two that you should put on probably any car that you're going to take to the track. The thing with a gauge where it's just a needle that's moving though, is, is that it will give you information, but the information is only as helpful as the attention that you can pay to the gauge in the instant. So like, it's yeah. something like you're trying to drive the car, you're trying to make a lap time, you're going to ride, going around a right-hand corner and maybe you can have like an, an alert or something set up in the gauge so that you'll see a flash of light but to be in that circumstance, to see the flash of light and and look at the gauge, not go off the track, not hit somebody, and actually go, aha, 28 psi, and then carry on about your business. Yeah, it's I mean it's better information than nothing. Um, and, and like a lot of gauges have high lows, kind of like what you're describing earlier. So maybe you can see what yeah. your minimum was. Um, but like to actually be able to collect data and look at it in context with everything else that the car is doing. Um, it's been really eye-opening for us. So like, yeah, if you guys can figure out more ways to kind of use that AIM, uh, say it was the AIM dash? or
1: um, Yeah, so we have the the AIM solo two AIM solo. data yeah. logger. Um, and then uh, we have the AEM uh, pressure sensor. And then yeah. in between there is the custom solution uh, that right. No Street Racing A6 has built. And so what that does is it takes the analog signal from the mm-hmm. um the pressure sensor so that's coming over uh low voltage uh just conductors mm-hmm. wires um and then that goes into analog to digital converter so then we have uh basically representation in this uh in this uh dedicated um microcontroller unit so basically mm-hmm. like a little uh, circuit board mm-hmm. and that has firmware that can read those voltages and then translate that into uh pressures and, then, and put then on the CAN bus, it injects it into the CAN bus. So the CAN bus yeah. is this um, kind of protocol that all modern cars have yeah. had for a while, where all these uh, data feeds are coming on them. And so um, that is able to inject this additional data feed into the CAN bus, and then we just record it um, on the Aim Solo uh, 2 just like you know any others, any mm-hmm. other data feed. So you have to set it up um, on the Aim Solo 2 to also recognize that there's an additional um signal coming on the, on the can bus but once you do that then you have this really nicely integrated solution that you don't really have to think about um yeah. and you also can display it on the the little device it's you know it's a fairly small mm-hmm. screen but for me it acts as a gauge as well right now so I don't have a separate um oil pressure gauge um but yeah for me that this is like a really nice way to do it because then you when you're on the track you just think about driving and yeah as, a, as someone with, like I've said, like 10 track days, I don't have a, a lot of extra capacity. I'm not Fernando Alonso watching Lance Stroll do passes on track, well, you know?
0: And, and <laughs> arguably as you're driving, you really shouldn't. I mean, you, you, you should be focused on what you're doing with the car, where the car is. And, and that's, I mean, that, that was another reason for us to go to a standalone is like, let the standalone do all the data collection and look at everything so that our driver can just get on with the business of driving.
1: Yeah, and then exactly.
0: setting up the fail safe. So like, okay, if something really does go off the rails, he's just doing his driving and then the car protects itself and he can just go, well, what happened? Yeah. But he doesn't have to like pay attention to flashing light, realize that means I have to push this button or, or do, do whatever. It's like, don't,
1: it just shuts everything down for you. Yeah, Yeah. The, the kind of like, uh, the pressure drops are always happening. Uh, at moments where you have a lot of lateral g, and so yeah. those are typically the moments where I don't want to be distracted by like right. anything else going on. So. Yeah, you,
0: you've got you've got higher priorities at that point in the driver's seat. Yeah,
1: exactly. For yeah. sure.
0: Well, very cool. Well, uh, Brian, again, I thanks for everything you guys are doing. Like all of you guys um, to put all this data together. Thanks to you for putting it together in in such. A great format and putting up on our YouTube page, and like again, there will be links in the description here. Um, and really excited to see what the next step is, what you guys are able to to try to develop, to work out, and and then test and and like find a solution or, or help vet the solution. Um, yeah. yeah, you guys are you. you guys have kind of put yourselves right in the middle of it, and it's hopefully it's exciting for you guys.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah. Everyone who I've uh, been collaborating with on on this also just wants to find a solution, and uh, the sooner we can do that, the the happier we'll be. But yeah, thank you so much for for uh, having me on the podcast, and uh, yeah, looking forward to to more tests in the future.
0: Absolutely, we'll we'll stay tuned. We'll we'll pay attention to everything that you're doing, and then uh, I don't know, depending on how things go, we'll maybe hopefully not too long from now bring it back on and talk about the solution that you guys found.
1: Yeah, so I look forward to it.
0: Perfect. Well, thanks again, Brian, for all your time. Thanks everybody home for watching, for listening. Thanks for your support as always. And until next time, stay tuned to Flat Irons Tuning. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Flatirons Syndicate Motorsports Podcast. Once again, we'd like to let you know that your support is what makes this show possible. Be sure to check out our online store at flatironstuning.com for any of your aftermarket or OEM Subaru parts needs. And as always, stay tuned with Irons Tuning.